Hi, and welcome to The Intersect. I'm Eric Tischler. Act Associates tackles complex challenges around the world, ranging from improving health and education to assessing the impact of environmental changes. For any given problem, we bring multiple perspectives to the table. We thought it'd be enlightening and maybe even fun to pair up colleagues from different disciplines so they can share their ideas and perhaps spark new thinking about how we solve these challenges. Today I'm joined by not two, but three of those colleagues, James White, Amanda Quintana, and Adam Schaefer. James' specialties include infectious disease, brokering public-private partnerships for national community-level health service delivery, and strengthening the quality of clinical services. Amanda supports climate and health strategy development and the integration of climate change into health programs. Adam focuses on clinical epidemiology to protect public health and is a specialist in integrating environmental wildlife conservation. Welcome. Thanks for having us, Eric. Thanks, Eric. Great to be here. Thanks, Eric. As human activity continues to impact the climate, we increasingly feel that impact on our own bodies and surroundings. Ocean plastics eaten by fish are showing up in our blood. Carbon and methane emissions from our technologies reduce air quality while exacerbating damaging weather events. As humanity further encroaches on habitats, we are increasingly exposed to zoonotic diseases while worsening the environment that supports us all. Meanwhile, health systems have to tackle these challenges even as they struggle to respond and adapt to ever more dangerous impacts. Clearly, these challenges aren't siloed. Human health, animal health, and the climate are inextricably connected. What we're talking about is planetary health. So how can we bring capabilities in health and environment together to preserve and protect planetary health? Amanda, I'm going to start with you because you really lean into climate as a facet of public health, which was kind of a shift of emphasis in your career. Uh, What made you want to make that pivot? Thanks, Eric. So I think it's exactly that, having more of an understanding that there are many things that impact our health beyond just disease or an illness. We really are linked with the environment and the health of our environment really impacts the way that we live and our health. Um, So my background was in global environmental health and that's what I studied when I was focusing in my master's of public health at the George Washington University. And really from there, I was focusing in on water sanitation and hygiene and air pollution more so. Um, And it was really when I started my career at USAID Global Health Bureau, where I noticed that it was much more than just the environment that was impacting our health. And we had a lot of programming out in the field on very vertical programs like immunization or maternal and child health service delivery. But one thing that they all were susceptible to were changes in climate and weather. And often we heard from a program that was out in Mozambique, for example, that was attacked by a cyclone, that their activities were completely destroyed and they had to shift the way that they were working on the ground. And you know, I thought, how could we not have anticipated this um, I I came from a um, a very climate-vulnerable city in Miami, in Florida, and was used to hurricanes. Um, And at the time, it was more and more the case that these hurricanes were becoming more intense and frequent. Um, And that was the case for a lot of extreme weather events we were seeing around the world. So I really got curious around this climate and health intersection and saw it was a huge gap in the way that we program in global development and decided to switch over to fully dedicate um, more of like aligning my passions with, um, I thought, a need at the time. Um, So I really shifted for that purpose. Um, So beyond seeing the ways in which climate impacts health, it's also the ways that the health sector contribute to climate change by the the emissions that they, um, health systems release, for example. and contribute to greenhouse gases. So there's a lot of different things that we can think about when we think of climate and health from vector-borne diseases to the health systems being on the front lines and responding um, during a climatic event. 
Um, so there are many things around that that um, I'm focusing in on. Great. Thank you. And real quick, what do you see as sort of the top climate threats? Uh, I mean, you talked a little bit about the lack of preparedness, the lack of foresight, the lack of connecting dots. Is there anything you want to highlight uh, other things that might be going unnoticed? Yeah. So I think a lot of it does come down to preparedness. And so this is the whole resilience conversation that we have often around how do you build climate resilience, especially in health or in the health sector. And a lot of it comes with the access and use of climate and weather information that is readily available in most places. It's utilizing available information to predict or help inform operations of health systems and planning and policy so that we do have things in place. So I'm really talking about early warning systems here when I when I talk about the use of climate and weather information systems and how it can be used by the health decision maker. So it's early warning systems for health, there have been a lot of shifts in vector-borne diseases, for example. That's a lot of the things that we see when we hear about the intersection of climate and health, especially with malaria. Um, and early warning systems really help with the vector control strategies, for example. They can tell us when we would expect an increase in temperature and maybe when we would see a vector shift. And that can really inform the way that we do our programming and that we practice our vector control strategies. So the utilization of this information is important and how it plays a role in our planning and preparedness um, on the ground is really important. Great, thank you. That might, that's actually a good segue to Adam, because I know Adam actually has some similar concerns. Because Adam, um, you know, when you first came on board, I knew as a zoonotic disease expert, you're an environmental um, epidemiology expert, and you've moved into climate and human health practices. Um, you want to talk a little bit about that shift for you? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Eric. Um, for me, it was, it was less of a shift and more of kind of a natural progression in the research that I've been doing. Um, all of my work's been anchored in environmental epi, um, but it's kind of taken a really interesting path in terms of um, the One Health approach, which is a pretty popular framework for research. And that's really integrating human, environmental, and animal health, both you know agriculture animals, companion animals, and wildlife, which has been my focus. Um, so my research really focused on using apex predators in, in shared ecosystems with humans as sentinels, and then actually closing that loop of research and implementing um, the projects to, to protect human health and actually measure the impacts on humans as well. So it really comes full circle. And some of the, the projects, a lot of them have the same kind of undercurrent of uh, climate impacts. Um, my work's ranged from looking at detecting the presence of concentrations of uh, harmful algal bloom toxins, for example, uh, in coastal ecosystems and sharks, uh, and then naturally progressing that into coastal residents that were in the same areas and, and sharing some of those waterways in Florida, for example. Um, and harmful algal blooms are impacted by things like salinity, so storm events play a big role, and water temperature as well. Um, but I've also done work that's ranged from uh, heavy metal and toxin concentrations uh, in dolphins, uh, and then again closing that loop and looking at local fishermen because we were able to to follow the pathway of exposure to uh, their their prey species, realizing that those prey species with the dolphins overlapped with what local fishermen were were catching, um, and and kind of tying that that piece together to look at early warnings and implementing. So it's really been about taking the One Health concept and implementing it and then finding that 
everything is connected with ecosystem health and climate change is, is right now a huge part of that. You know, like Amanda mentioned, we're, we're really interested and in, in concerned about impacts from climate change with emerging infectious diseases. I mean, we're talking like 75% plus of new and emerging infectious diseases are zoonotic. Um, and a lot of those zoonotic spillover events are driven by things like habitat degradation that are directly impacted by climate change. Um, so we really want to take that One Health concept uh, and implement it. You know, things like um, One Health committees around the world. You know, One Health is one kind of big, and planetary health is a pretty big concept. But once you start implementing it at the local level, you have to realize that you have to be very adaptable. Um, the challenges are unique. The resources are unique and bringing together uh, the right personnel from those areas, those countries um, that have the, the interdisciplinary expertise, like the environmental health folks, the human health, um, you're talking about agriculture as well, um, to, to discuss the common needs and policies that can be implemented. Um, it's pretty interesting how we look at even conservation uh, implementation can directly impact human health and improve human health. Um, so it's it's about putting those pieces together and using data that's already out there um, and active surveillance and, and Amanda, like you mentioned, with data that's already available and using that as an early warning system. Um, that's including surveillance. So that's including zoonotic surveillance and integrating veterinary professionals as well um, to, to give us the best chance to adapt uh, to the challenges that climate change is really presenting us. Yeah, and you've mentioned in the past that, you know, like vets might see that data, but it's not necessarily getting where it needs to get for us to act on it more, you know, effectively. James, I, I want to get you in here. Um, uh, and, and I, I sort of think everything we're saying is is leading up to you. From my angle, uh, I've spent the last 20 years plus in uh, clinical care, you know, in uh, emergency response, in, as Amanda and others have talked about, you know, vertical programming where we're sort of reacting to events. And what concerns me is that we have health systems around the world that are still recovering from COVID, uh, that are, many are going to face another wave of either COVID or an infectious disease, as uh, Adam has mentioned. And that plus climate is deeply concerning. Uh, the vulnerabilities are heat, uh, extreme weather events, the damage that those cause, but we're talking about air quality, uh, water quality, food security, and safety. Uh, we're talking about the aspects of ecology and encroachment on environment, which you mentioned, Eric. And so those are the vulnerabilities. And as a public health clinician, my concern is the injury mortality that comes from that, the heat-related illnesses, the respiratory illnesses, the waterborne uh, vector diseases that Adam mentioned. You know, we're facing compounded challenges. And my concern, you know, coming from an emergency response background is uh, that we're not prepared. And that's the key word that's been thrown around is preparedness and you know, moving away from reacting to these events and being very intentional in our prevention and response. Yeah, thank you. And, you know, I, I, right before this call, I, I, something you said, Amanda, I mean, think of this. Um, I, I was on an, another call with a colleague in um, our, on our housing team. Um, and she's, she's doing a podcast with someone else on, um, you know, heat and, and people experiencing homelessness. 
Um, and Adam, I'm thinking of the podcast you and I did with uh, Claire Lay, because Claire Lay had that report on just sort of inev inevitable that uh, death due to heat are going to increase, right? And that's not necessarily due to anything uh, that we would think of as maybe dramatic, like wildfires or hurricanes or cyclones. And yet, you know, as you're sort of saying, James, right, we think of COVID was going on day after day after day. This is sort of, you know, climate change isn't just the climate and the climate crisis isn't just dramatic event. It's every day. It, it is it is our changing climate. So, um, you know, as I think everybody is saying, how do we normalize the sharing of data so we can respond to those changes, adapt to those changes, and hey, maybe head off those changes. Um, and so, so maybe let's sort of level set it that way. Like, you know, what? How can we start talking about connecting those dots on the regular so we are just minimizing, adapting, and and hopefully preventing? I just want to mention something that Eric uh, just raised that links to the social determinants of health. So I've just mentioned, you know, a lot of health outcomes, but as you mentioned. You know, food, clothing, shelter, uh, and, and especially housing crises. These are, you know, everyday needs that are being uh, impacted across the globe by climate. And so it is that effect, not just on our lives, but our livelihoods and our ability to, to recover and progress from these crises. Um, we've mentioned, you know, the impact on people, but something you've raised is sharing information and, Amanda mentioned, you know, the, the matching of data to resources so that we can operate effectively. There are impacts and vulnerabilities on humans, but we can clearly see the impacts and vulnerabilities in our systems and our ability to even function. And that is where I think information comes in. So I think it's also helpful with framing that we talk about what we mean by systems, right? A system seems like a very complex, um, intangible thing, um, but we have a lot of the answers already. We have a lot of learnings and lessons from responses to COVID, for example, responses to Ebola, responses to previous wildfires. I mean, it's not the first time that we are experiencing similar climatic events, and uh, there is a distinguished we need to distinguish between slow onset events, which Eric, you were referring to about it always being there and it's not necessarily only gonna come in one wave of an extreme weather event, but it's also about acknowledging that things are changing overall and we just need to change the way that we do things. So there needs to be a transformation of systems. And in, in this case, we're talking about health. So what are those lessons that we can learn and draw from whether it be around governance, whether it be around the way that we coordinated around a response, and how do we pull that into the preparedness side so that we're not just responding consistently and in that loop, but are being effective and building resilience so that we don't go into a space of needing to respond all the time. I just wanted to jump in on that keyword resilience. So when we were talking about resilience, that's a very key word Amanda just mentioned. And when we think about it in the context of a health system, we're talking about three very key capacities. The first is to absorb a shock or stress, uh, immediate or slow onset event. The next is to be able to adapt your way of doing. If that is a prolonged crisis or if uh, it's a recurring event, as Amanda's discussed. And then Amanda also mentioned transform. 
that's where we're really looking at health systems of the future that have taken all these lessons into account and have not just adapted, but transformed the way we live in our world to reduce all these vulnerabilities. And I think, you know, the animal, uh, zoonotic, uh, ecological aspect of that um, is what Adam works on. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for teeing that up perfectly, James. Yeah, when you talk about resilience, we also talk about integrated prevention and prevention in animal systems um, because we know the next pandemic it's it's coming, right? It's a matter of of time. It's not an not an if. It's an it's a when, and it's how we structure the, the early warning systems and response uh, to prevent these widespread outbreaks where at least we can contain and then identify really early on. And, and again, that, that goes back to that early surveillance systems where you have integration for large projects where they're out searching for the next virus um, in wildlife. There's a lot of other ways, especially working uh, directly with uh, animal care providers, veterinarians, for example, and, and farmers, uh, where we've seen big wins, you know, again, you don't hear about them. The, the victories are, are not communicated enough. Um, I think we get a lot of compassion fatigue and fatigue over, you know, what's coming next. Everybody's fearful, but we also need to recognize uh, where these concepts have been successful in the past and, and build on those um, to build on resilience in those systems. That's a great point. Thanks. And and so with surveillance too, that sort of gets back to um, I think it was Amanda was saying it. Um, you know, we we're talking about planetary health, which is the health of the, of the entire planet. So that is our environment. That is humans. That is animals. Uh, Bros talking about at the local level, like you're saying with surveillance, right? How do we start actually connecting the dots? Uh, building on success stories, like you just mentioned, Adam, um, Amanda, you said we have a lot of these capabilities already in place. So how do we start bringing these things together, right? Because we don't have to reinvent the wheel, right? We just need to sort of put all the wheels on the car, maybe. As a globe, I don't think there's a one, one an answer for the world, right? But right. maybe in a local municipality in Zambia, for example, I could give you maybe a better response to that question. But we just want to want to acknowledge that not every person around the world experiences the same health system. And even within a health system, they don't have the same access or experience to the health system. And I'm getting at the inequity of a health system. And when we think about the ways in which we are addressing or implementing such early warning systems and who they're for, we need to think about the most vulnerable and marginalized as well, so that we really think of equity in all of that we do. And I'd be really curious to know, you know, how do you all consider equity also in the work that you're engaged in? And does this come up um, in the approaches that you're working on in One Health and in global health security? That's great, man. It, it comes up all the time, uh, especially when you talk about the interface between wildlife ecosystems and, and humans. You have kind of the more marginalized folks who are, um, you know, farming communities, for example, the ones who are are encroaching on, you know, rainforests, for example, um, they're more likely to come in to contact with wildlife where those spillover events occur. But like you mentioned, they're they're less um, equipped to deal with those spillover events or identify that it's an event before it spreads too fast. 
Um, so it's it's an essential component when we start thinking about implementing it, um, depending again on on the geographical level that you're addressing that. But James probably has a bit more more insight, especially from the system perspective. For me, especially if you put it in the emergency response and or prevention thinking, equity equals differential vulnerability. And that means that either because of who you are, your your race, your creed, your gender, uh, your physical ability and or disability, uh, this puts you at differential risk. And so it requires acknowledging that people in our communities require extra assistance and we need to step up and provide that. So it is built. I don't look at equity as something separate. I look at it as part of this planetary health means acknowledging people, plants and animals on our planet need protecting and uh, differential vulnerability is a big part of that and acknowledging that. So James, I was going to ask you to, you know, to Amanda's point, it's not, there's not a global or, or there's not a planetary working group, right? That's going to come up with the one size fits all solution. We have talked about this being local from, um, as you're listening to this from, from again, that health systems perspective, you know, connecting these dots, what might be a framework for thinking about this that could be obviously could be scaled differently, applied differently, but, you know, do you feel like we have some approaches that could be expanded to adapt, you know, the surveillance we're talking about, um, you know, baking in resilience, et cetera? I think Adam's already mentioned the One Health committees that are being formed around the globe. Um, mm -hmm. That's a very, very good start. That's bringing human, animal, and ecological health quote-unquote experts together and ideally decision makers who can, you know, buy into that dialogue uh, and we can get the political will through those committees. But it is a combined effort. It's going to take public and private actors. It's going to take people from all across different disciplines. Uh, so One Health is one aspect. The other is the pandemic fund out of uh, the World Bank which is starting, to be, uh, starting to, to be implemented, and we'll see uh, how effective that, that can be in mobilizing political will. Uh, but, you know, this is the future. Again, we're talking about transformative health and transforming the way we do things, and, and we're, we're getting started. So I, I think similar to what James described on, you know, what's working already in One Health, for example, in climate and health, albeit a new space, there is also this attempt of being cross-sectoral, working in a coordinated fashion, not just at a national level in a country government, but also at the local level to understand what particular risks need to be addressed and how people are going to be looking out for improving health or building resilience um, the community's health um, to different climate risks, depending on where they are. And you see these through climate and health vulnerability assessments. You also see this through um, a big push on policy um, under national adaptation plans that have time and time again named the health sector as a priority adaptation sector. Um, so there's a big international push to think about climate and health, and we are only just getting our feet grounded, but we can learn from disciplines like One Health that have already been working in this approach for some time. And that's why we see a lot now this intersection of utilizing a One Health approach in the auspices of climate and health. And what does that look like? I, I think you're all saying the same thing. We, we have, the pieces of the puzzle are there. 
is the awareness there and it's just a matter of we have not caught up with that awareness or do you think we still need uh, to build that awareness? Because you know, I'm thinking actually, Amanda, of your work with methane in the health sector, right? Like the health sector needing to understand how you know, reducing methane really speaks directly to their work. Do you feel like there's more evangelizing we need to do across sectors? I think there's always a need to build awareness across sectors because when you are in a specific sector and you are day by day looking at particular tasks, you might not be completely aware of other facets that might be impacting your work or that could improve your work. So I do think that there's definitely always an element of awareness building. Um, I also think it's about um, highlighting these lessons and sharing these lessons across countries and across projects whenever possible. You know, everyday resilience is a concept that's come up in the academic literature around health systems resilience because we were trying to understand what does this mean? And resilience is really a term that comes from ecology and is now being used in the health sector space. Um, but how do you measure it? What does it mean? I mean, I think it's always there. We are we as people, as humans, are resilient beings and we are trying to survive and make it through the next day. Um, and that's a part of resilience. And that's kind of like a bit of the lessons that we need to draw from when we're talking about how we make our systems resilient and the functions that we're working on resilient as well. I just think that's such a critical point because, you know, we talk about reducing emissions by X percent or we talk about concepts like resilience. But in the end, it's about acknowledging the shared risk. And I think that's what we've all been talking about is is making people care. So what what's what is it going to take for us to care? And that's where I think uh, some of the solutions we're talking about are practical, operational, you know, tangible uh, to not just make people care, but to show some progress. Yeah, that's the important part too. It's not just awareness and and having caring about it. It's also what will drive key decision makers. To action and implementation. So these these frameworks and discussions are great, uh, and and some of them like the the One Health frameworks have been out there for a while. But the the key is actually implementing them um, and getting stakeholder engagement to implement them. You know, we we can talk amongst ourselves for for hours about these concepts and these these frameworks, but it's it's not going to lead to effective action unless we get key stakeholders and policymakers involved, convince it's a problem, show clear solutions, and being able to measure those outcomes uh, and the effectiveness of, of that preparedness, which is, is always the difficult part, right, to, to, to prove and demonstrate how effective these approaches are. If I could add one thing, in global health security, it often feels like I'm selling insurance. You know, I'm trying to prevent something that may or may not happen. And if we're successful, it won't happen. And so getting political will for, you know, when there are so many competing priorities, so many financial needs within a health system and within a country, you know, how do you sell insurance uh, to prevent something from, from occurring in the future? So it's a big issue. Well, I was just, thank you, James, and I was just thinking about you know, the work we did for um, New York and their climate plan, and we said, this is this is how much you'll save by preventing these foreseeable health impacts, So, and that helped them get that plan approved. So it is something that only can be done, but has been done. 
Um, but I hear what y'all are saying. It's like how do had it's also normalizing it, right? And normalizing these steps as 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 well as showing the value. Um, and making the business case, making the right. business case beyond advocacy. You know, advocacy is where you raise the awareness. Hopefully, making the business case for why this is needed right now. It, it's a clear cost benefit scenario when you're trying to sell some of these approaches. <laughs> and when do we see insurance being purchased across the globe when there's a crisis and then it was too late? So often the, we learn from crises and we learn from times of, you know, panic. And that is something that we're trying to prevent. We don't want to get to that stage. One thing I'm doing, you know, especially as we even talk about PEPFAR renewal and maintaining commitment to, to the HIV response. You know, going back to this idea of the butterfly effect with climate, you know, an event in Asia affects the globe. An event in North America affects the globe. And so that goes again to shared risk and getting people to understand that we share risk uh, regardless of where we're located. And then to spur them to action, it's not just the shared risk, but the shared benefits that each of these countries can see um, by implementing these approaches. We're a global company working with different countries at different scales in all these different areas. So we've already said a lot of tools are in place. There's surveillance is in place. Um, Some of these conversations are happening at smaller levels. We just need to start connecting these dots. Every tabletop exercise, every real world sort of emergency response activity typically demonstrates that coordination was the problem. So Mm -hmm. as you've just described, it's about putting all these pieces together and doing it before an event occurs, not right after or not 10 years after, um, and coordinating effectively across all these various people. And to plug APT, if you want me to plug APT, one thing APT does very well and has been doing for decades is bringing people together at roundtables, in working groups, you know, to have those difficult conversations and to get to consensus, to get to resolution. And uh, yeah, we're continuing that that trend. Con- continuing that trend is almost a theme, right? Because like, we're talking about how this needs to be standardized, right? Uh, well, I'll add one thing, um, and this is for our founder. So I'll, I'll just say, you know, I think this is why App was created, was to tackle these huge problems what we call wicked problems in the public health world. Well, and understand we've already started, right? This is, this is the latest point in this conversation. To your point, James, Aspen going for going on 60 years. Uh, so we've been building to this. Um, so we're not starting from scratch. No, it's, we're part of a movement. This is an evolution of our practice at APT, and we have to continue to adapt and evolve to take on the challenges of climate change, of global health security, um, all by using the tools that we've created over the you know 60 plus years of existing. So to the extent that we continue to these trends and normalize these conversations, hopefully the, the more progress we make. Thank you all for joining me. Thanks, Eric. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Eric. And thank you for joining us at The Intersect.